Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're rounding second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, career changers, cool people, I don't know, all the, all the uh, interesting things that we want to talk about. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And today we have uh, sort of our, a third co-host, um, my <laughs> original co-host, uh, who we haven't talked to in about a year. And so we thought it'd be interesting to bring her back on the show and catch up a little bit and talk about some of the, especially some of the political education work that she's been doing. Uh, you will hopefully remember Jenny Dorsey, chef and founder of Studio Atau. Jenny, thanks for coming on the show again. Hey, everyone. It's nice to be back. Uh, so like I said, it's been about a year since we, I mean, since our listeners have heard from you. So uh, why don't you catch us up? What's What's been going on in your life? Well, um, I officially left to move to Los Angeles, and I'm still in Los Angeles. It's great here and very sunny, though we had a small earthquake this morning. I wasn't sure if it was an earthquake, but I have now confirmed it was an earthquake. Um, luckily, it's small and not a big deal. Um, was your dog since, snoring loudly or something? Yeah, exactly. Um, but since then, we have, uh, pre-COVID, we were touring um, one of our series, Asian in America, across the U.S. and had wrapped that up last year. Um, I had talked about a little bit about it on the show before, but for those who don't remember, it's an exhibition and dinner series that talks about the Asian American identity through food, drink, uh, virtual reality, and poetry. And then this year, mostly due to COVID, we're not uh, doing in-person events, obviously, but also had kind of changed up our priorities. So we've been moving more into like a think tank style kind of community organization where we explore different social justice related topics, um, especially through the lens of food um, and have been hosting various industry discussion groups. Uh, We've been calling them experimental salons. So they're facilitated conversations about specific social impact topics. And we wrap that uh, like we concluded one section of our first initial salons and debuted a toolkit about recognizing, disrupting, and preventing tokenization in food media, which we can talk a little bit more about and are starting on like a next series of conversations. So it's been it's been a lot of just like shifting around, refocusing, finding new priorities, but it's also been pretty exciting. Yeah, and I wanted to to hear more about that 
process of pivoting, right? Pivoting is a, a regular theme, something we talk about and <laughs> yeah. hear about a lot from our guests, whether that's in their careers or, or sort of within a, a particular job that they're doing. And you made this pivot pretty, pretty tightly, it felt like. You, you saw what was going on, you figured out how to reposition, and you went for it. So I, I'd just like to hear more of the details of how you thought through and then implemented that process. And yeah, I, I mean, and also, Jenny, you're also just like so active on social media. I feel like that's a, a whole nother job that you are kind of in, engaging in. So also, like when you're making those pivots, how are you prioritizing your time? Because um, yeah. I think we all know, like being on Twitter can be a job. And when you are also, <laughs> like, um, you know, admin for Facebook pages and which all it all, and it all ties into the work of Studio Atal and the work that you're doing. Um, like, how are you also prioritizing those different things? Yeah, it's been really hard. And I don't think I've done a great job of also like maintaining some semblance of work life balance, because I'm just like online too much. So I've actually put that as a priority for myself to not be online so much. But um, when COVID first started, we happened to have just launched our first um, set of experimental salons, and they were in person, they were like a dinner and discussion, and how we wanted to you know, our vision at the time was, you know, how do we bring together people within one industry who are passionate about um, improving the industry and making change, but often don't see each other and can't collaborate together? How do we have like a confidential, really in-depth, facilitated conversation where we get the implementation steps out of them and, you know, create something that is not only useful for them in their regular work, but hopefully use for their peers in the community at large. And so we brought together all these like writers, editors, like producers, et cetera, within um, food media to talk about tokenization, what it is, how it occurs, and was able to put a toolkit around that. And at the time, our uh, idea was to replicate that salon across multiple cities. So we started in LA, we had um, them lined up for San Francisco and for New York. COVID hit. And so everything just kind of turned into like, it has to be online. And we weren't thrilled about that. Because obviously, as us people in the food world know, like, it, it's really hard to replicate an in person discussion, especially on a sensitive topic, like uh, tokenization or about appropriation or just uh, about like oppression in food representation. Um, so we were trying to figure out how to recreate this sense of vulnerability, this sense of connection via Zoom. Uh, I don't think we've done a perfect job of that at all, but we're working on it. Um, and as like COVID continued, we realized like, hey, people are like, we're getting really good traction from our toolkit. People are really excited by this sort of educational material. How do we spend more time and energy and resources doing this? Because honestly, like, Yes, um, Asian American, all of the public programming we do is really important to us, but we also do reach a pretty small group of people every time because we have very small events. Um, with the toolkits, like we can get in front of a slightly bigger audience. And even though the salons are still quite small, in person, there are only 10 to 12 people on Zoom. We keep it to six. Um, like there's, I guess there's a little bit more balance between like small touch or small group deep touch and then you also get access to a slightly wider group even though it's a niche group um, and that's always been like the like we could never get that with our public programming so it seemed like a really good fit for 
this time, at least experimenting with that. And as we started getting more volunteers and I hired a couple more part-time people to help out with the research and the writing process, it just seemed like the stuff that we were all coalescing around, the stuff that we were all really excited about was just how to expand think like the thinking of our industry. How do we actually like kind of push our industry leaders into changing? Because now that we have the attention of all these editor in chiefs, like we can ask them to do things for us. We can ask them to like hold themselves to implementation timelines. We can ask them to hold themselves to like metrics that we can develop with them. You know, maybe it's like a little bit of like public coercion, but like at least we can do that. Um, so why not try? Like that is the point of a think tank is to try and enact change. So then we start thinking like, what are the other places that we want change to happen beyond food? You know, what are aspects of social justice that we care about? So it's all been kind of feeding into like, how do we keep how do we keep that sort of spirit going? So something that we're working on now is getting together like a coalition about business ethics and having different leaders from different industries like talk about like, what does it mean to be like an ethically engaged business in like marketing? Marketing is a complicated and like there does, does like certain types of marketing need to exist or is it inherently like ethical to for them to exist? Like, I don't know. So, um, but those are the questions that we'd like to ask. And I think it starts at like asking the big questions and then distilling it down to action steps. And we want to be part, like we want to be like a leader in that process. So that's the dream. Um, but with social media, we've just found it as a good way to at least, you know, people have short attention spans. So if we can at least get them engaged on social media, then we'll like open that top of the funnel first, then, you know, you lose some people by asking them to click into a longer piece, like the full toolkit or the full blog post, but you still get some people. And then, you know, you always, there's like a trickle down effect of like, then you get a few more people who are um, not like they're more engaged, but not as many people who want to go and like petition for legislative change or whatever that thing is, or participate in the uh, every month, like a two hour, like book discussion etc like it's just kind of been social media has helped us like open that funnel to get at least just like more people in the door have more people care about the topics that we care about how did you choose tokenization as the first topic and and also i guess maybe um for anyone who might not be familiar with the term or how it applies to food could you give us a little background on that yeah, yeah sure. I love that. I love that you pointed out that tokenization is like a, a kind of sensitive topic, um, mm-hmm. because right now I think people are they're vocal about understanding what representation means, what appropriation means, you know, mm-hmm. what diversity means. But tokenization is not something that um, that people are comfortable uh, discussing or acknowledging. Yeah, um, I. I honestly am not sure how, like, it's something that I really personally wanted to talk about. And then as I was talking to our community lead at the time, we were like, well, this, this makes sense. We, we have some experience in it. Um, we can get the right people together from our network. Like, let's just go for it. I guess it was one of those, like, we didn't think about it too much. It was like, this topic hits home. I just want to do it. Um, so I guess that's the joy of running an organization that has like four people in it. Um, just kind of fly by the seat of your pants a little bit. Um, But for those who are unfamiliar with tokenization, I mean, the word tokenism and token and tokenization have a long history. And we're not exactly sure who it's like someone in particular coined the term. But um, as far as I can 
tell, uh, there's been a lot of instances of it being used within the civil rights uh, movement. So uh, there's um, a quote that dates back to like 1962 from Dr. Martin Luther King. There's an interview with Malcolm X where he references it. So it's definitely been around in the public conscience for longer than like the last like 10 years or something like that. Um, I think a really nice uh, ironically, on Wikipedia, there is a, a pretty comprehensive definition of tokenization, which is the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to do a particular thing, especially by recruiting a small number of people from underrepresented groups in order to give the appearance of sexual or racial equality within a workforce. Um, there's also a quote from a piece called Tokenism and Women in the Workplace, from a journal in 1988, which I think is also quite telling, um, quote, the token's marginal status is as a participant who is permitted entrance, but not full participation. Someone who meets all the formal requirements, but does not possess the auxiliary characteristics such as race, sex, and ethnicity. Consequently, they are never permitted by insiders to become full members and may even be ejected if they stray too far from the special niche that's out. So in food, we find this in a variety of different ways, which we talk about in the toolkit. But I think some of the most like prominent ways are you'll see a primarily uh, an establishment that has lots and lots of white contributors, but you have like one or two like Asian or one or two black or one or two Latinx contributors, one or two indigenous contributors that like only talk about their like Asian things or like indigenous things and they, you know and especially around those big months like black history month thanksgiving etc so they kind of only have this one small piece of the pie that they're relegated to and always not only they have that double burden of like they have to represent it perfectly because it's like the only time it ever gets represented but also their particular viewpoint like they're an individual um, becomes generalized for that entire group so, like, if I write a piece about, like, fried rice or whatever, because I'm Chinese-American, like, that's fried rice. You know, this is the New York Times proof fried rice. But, like, lots of people make fried rice in different ways. And so not only does it, um, like, tokenize that person, but then it also really makes the rest of the group that we assume that they belong, with, belong to or identify with become a monolith because they do not do not have the complexities of the rest of the population, which is, you know, white Americans. Um, also, the f food or articles or topics that they usually cover are often painted, whether it's through like the way it's styled or the way it's um, the kind of adjectives that are used as somehow being like other or different from the norm. And the norm is very much set by like white, middle-class American, affluent, uh, mostly men, but food also women, um, and so it's it's like a combination of all of those factors. Wow, you um you explained that really eloquently, um, and I I want to say something because an article just came out yesterday um, between Priya Krishna and mm -hmm. um and Yawanda Yawande Komalov, and apologies mm -hmm. if I'm mispronouncing her name. Mm -hmm. But it discusses, um, I mean, the, the title of the article was When Did Recipe Writing Get So Whitewashed? And the whole premise was the, the singular perspective for which um, food media is viewed through. Um, and I think 
that really just kind of plays about what you're saying about tokenization, which is this othering of certain types of food that might not be considered mainstream, even, even though something like fried rice is probably as like mainstream as like, um, like food people eat in America is going to get. Um, like mm-hmm. people eat fried rice <laughs> as much, like as much or maybe more than what someone is eating. I don't know. Meatloaf. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was just going to say like, it's, it's kind of like silly because we're like making assumptions about a demographic of people being Americans as like mostly white or mostly this and that when we have, or we're at least moving towards a very racially mixed group of Americans. And so it's kind of like we're like clinging on to this idea of America and Americana that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And and I think there's also this uh, kind of tension in food writing around this topic that um, there's a fine line between tokenization and celebration in in certain Mm -hmm. cases, especially in the way that you were talking about, uh, you know, certain types of articles or recipes being published certain times of year connected to holidays or other events that are taking place. So how do you, I don't know, how do you recommend that, that a a media outlet or anybody else who's talking about food, how do you recommend they navigate that balance between both wanting to celebrate a a particular tradition, but then also understanding that there's a lot of diversity within that tradition and recognizing that? Yeah. I mean, this is definitely tricky because sometimes they're like, tokenizing articles come as like well-intentioned, you know, assigned pieces. Um, So what I always say is like, especially for things like like Black History Month, Asian Pacific Islander, you know, whatever month, um, there's nothing wrong with like running pieces about that month, but are those the only, is that the only time of year that you're celebrating those type of voices and those type of pieces? Because you can do both. You can have them run in the month of February or May and also have them run across the whole year. Um, And then I was talking to one of my assigning editors about, you know, there's a piece that we're writing and I was like, oh, maybe we should reach out to a couple different writers and see if they would prefer to write this piece because it's, you know, it could be seen as like from a Mexican perspective, like, you know, and so I think it, I mean, I think it depends because reach out to the writers, have a bigger writer pool that you're always reaching out to and ask them, like, do you want to write this piece? Because I'm Chinese American, but I don't, I don't know tons about every type of Chinese food, nor am I interested in writing about it. There are some that I have a special connection to and might be interested in writing about, but that's not universal. And that's the case for all food writers, you know? And so it's, there's nothing wrong with a writer covering something that's not from their particular background. But at the same time, I think that you should try to give priority to those who have a special personal cultural connection to something and give them the opportunity to do so. And if maybe like, that writer is in your in your arsenal you don't happen to know them like then it's assign it to someone else and make sure that it's covered appropriately and covered like respectfully i mean i think there's there's a balance to find there but um it comes down to like recognizing that all writers have unique perspectives and they're individuals and they shouldn't be kind of like lumped into like that person only covers this topic and i think that's a really great point you made about simply having that dialogue um yeah like to your to your answer your question Ethan about how can we celebrate without necessarily um you know 
putting someone in, in, in a box essentially, or, or relegating to, you know, certain times of the year. Um, it's just, I think just having that dialogue and asking, Hey, do you want to write about this? And I think sometimes those can, those can be uncomfortable conversations to have. Um, and I think it's, it, we can't put it all on, um, the editors. I think even as, as freelance contributors, we have to sometimes ask ourselves, am I the best person to cover this piece? Mm-hmm. Um, given, just given, especially, you know, the political climate and what's happening. Um, and maybe sometimes passing that off to someone who might be a better, a better fit to, to give a more, um, you know, just to give a, a different perspective for that particular piece. Mm-hmm. I think Something I was talking to um, with an editor was it's just really hard for editors to have that much time to find new writers. And that should be like an implementation like thing for news outlets that really want to do this the right way is that editors should have some sort of support in finding them new writers. Because if you're totally overwhelmed already, like editing things and then receiving pitches, especially if you're a signing editor, um, you just don't have time to really like get on Twitter and look for freelancers. And then if, even if you open up your inbox, like, and you get like slammed with all these like freelance inquiries, like sometimes you can't sift through them well. And you, anyway, what I'm saying is you just default to using people you already know because you're comfortable with them. You're used to the writing style. They don't have to go through 15 steps to get set up in your AP invoicing system, like all of those things, which are like, they seem small, but I think they grow into bigger obstacles for better representation. So how do we mitigate those factors using some sort of like actual system within um, the editorial process, whether that's like an assistant or I don't, I don't know. I think probably like a human assistant would have to be that person, but how do we just like make sure that we're just even getting more writers even considered for these different roles? Yeah, there was a, a piece that I'm sure you saw in, uh, I think it was in the New Republic, but about how the sort of complicity mm-hmm. of food media in okay. creating toxic work environments in restaurants and elevating chefs who had uh, toxic behavior patterns uh, in, in, their, in their kitchens or sort of across the board in their lives. Um, and what I felt, and I think some of the criticism I read on Twitter about that article was that uh, it it ultimately puts all the burden on the individual writer. At the end of the piece, she's you know she says, well, writers should writers should be writing better. Uh, they should be doing more investigation. They should be digging deeper into these stories. Meanwhile, freelancers, as you both know way better than I do, are paid not nearly enough. No to money. Do, right to do any. I mean, even to do the work that that you're already doing, let alone to spend more time and talk to more sources and really build out a, a, a deeply investigated story is just not really mm-hmm. feasible. So uh, do you see a, I don't know, do you see a, a route out of that situation where the, the lack of funding in food media contributes to a culture of making it as easy as possible for an editor, which contributes to a system of keeping the same people's voices uh, at, at the top of everybody's screens? Yeah, I mean, basically it comes down to like how the media companies make money. And I think media would agree that by and large, like the way they make money is like usually ads or sponsorships, clicks is basically predicated on like clicks is driving just it incentivizes bad behavior because you constantly have to turn out this volume of work that is uh, very hard to achieve at the not only at the speed, but also the like accuracy um, that 
consumers demand it. And then you get penalized by like Google or by like on social media if you don't do that. But at the same time, you're not making as the newsrooms are usually not making as much as they used to. So then like there's like staff cuts and budget cuts and all of that. So um, it's all kind of problematic. But I think one one way that I have seen it happen um, is that I have a piece that I am still working on for international and they have like a fact checker actually come in and like check all this stuff. So that helps, but then somebody has to pay the fact checker. Um, when I talked to Kushbu over at food and wine, she talked about like, we need to look into making sure that when we do cover restaurants um, and chefs, we also look at the employees that they work with, but that's a whole nother step of the process because you have to, you know, get moved past the PR firm and literally have one-on-one interviews with these employees. And then you're like sifting through employee stories. So I don't think there's like a perfect solution, but I think it comes down to everybody would have to make like this collective effort to put out less stuff in with better quality. Um, is that like feasible? I'm not totally sure because if anything, we haven't seen consumers be really being really uh, willing to pay more for that. So I'm like, I don't know, like government subsidies, but then we have like this, you know, conflict of interest. Um, so basically, I don't know, but at least the approach that we're taking at the studio is basically like, let's just put out less content on social media. And like, we put out like one thing every three weeks, but we have spent a lot of time on it. Um, and that's like all we can do. I have another question about social media, but first, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Stay with us. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting... Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And our guest this week is former co-host and chef and founder of Studio Atau, Jenny Dorsey. Um, so right before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, sort of new ways of presenting food writing. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you more about the social media point that you just made, because we've seen a lot, at least I feel like I've seen a lot more of that happen recently, where writers, often, you know, decently high profile writers who have a following are choosing to publish their work on their own social media rather than, you know, in a, in a, in an actual news outlet, uh, mm -hmm. as they would have done traditionally. And this is something you've been doing quite a bit of, uh, even going, you know, before the, the toolkit and everything else that you've been talking about, 
you were doing a whole sort of uh, flavor breakdown series of <laughs> and um, so can you tell us a little bit more about your decision to do that why and how you you have started to publish in that way and the difference that it's made I guess in in terms of the response that you get or the way that you feel about the pieces after they're published yeah I mean I definitely do think that when you publish on social media like you are getting a self-selecting group of people that already follow you so Usually it's like people are, it's pretty receptive and they're encouraged, like they want that sort of content and they'll tell you if they don't like it, or I guess you can tell they don't like it if it's like not performing very well. But for me, it's just been helpful to reduce the barrier of A, having to shop it and pitch it around to all these editors since I'm not like, I don't know, like know all the editors everywhere. So it takes a really long time to literally just land the piece, which I could have just spent writing the piece. Um, And then there's always a bit of that clash of your voice versus the outlet's voice, as well as the editor's voice. And then sometimes depending on what you're writing about, then there's like other conflicts of interest, like who's their advertisers or people that might be doing sponsorships for them. Um, And that's not supposed to influence editorial direction, but like the reality is I've definitely written for outlets. I I won't name just um, out of courtesy, but um, they had some stuff going on with their, like their financial situation um, with venture capital. And I, my piece was about venture capital. And so a lot of the language was softened and like, did it totally ruin the piece? No, but is it what I wanted? No. Um, so I think a lot of writers are starting to move to like newsletters. Um, Alicia Kennedy, who we had on the show before, has her own newsletter that she puts out once a week that's like, you know, long form essays. Um, so I think a lot of writers are starting to do that or doing like the long Twitter threads or the swipe throughs on Instagram. I think there's just a lot more freedom to be had. And I mean, freedom sometimes can be good and bad, but at least you can explore the ideas that you might want to and nobody else cares about so what you mentioned Ethan like I had this whole like textures breakdown and I don't know if anyone else cared about it but I spent two weeks thinking about textures and I had a great time um so that was really (laughs) awesome it it came out as like a beautifully shot and produced sort of fully realized piece of content the kind of thing that like I wish I would I could read in a in a major publication um so I don't know (laughs) I tell the major publication that (laughs) right And and another great point about this whole basically concept of self-publishing is you own the work. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't even have to worry about negotiating a rate or, or, or perhaps, you know, you're limited to that negotiated rate if something goes viral and it, and something's bringing in a lot of traffic. Um, and that's like the, the great thing I see happening with these newsletters that I see a number of people happening is they're, they're paid newsletters mm-hmm. and it's allowing writers like a chance to actually like have, like have people subscribe to, to their words and what they have to say. Um, mm-hmm. And it, in a way it also got me to, to thinking about blogging because bloggers have been self publishing, um, you know, since I, I guess what 15 years now was, was maybe when the first blogs were sprouting up and, um, and now that's kind of like seeped over into the world of journalism. And um, I think it's like a really exciting thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's great that people are, or writers are finally being able to say like, you know, follow my voice specifically versus many times I think you become like a Times contributor, like Bon Appetit or whatever, and people follow that pub, but they're not necessarily loyal to you. And 
it can almost makes the pub feel like the writers are dispensable, which they're not. So yeah, I think it's like good to like shift that power dynamic. But I mean, the reality is like what writing a piece for the times will likely get you more views. I mean, I guess I, I don't know how many influ- uh, Instagram followers you have, but like, at least for me, like I know that if I wrote something for the times, I would still get more views, but it's kind of like balancing the, the cost benefit of, hey, like I get to say something potentially more controversial. I don't even think my stuff is that controversial, but more controversial than what some of the bigger outlets would want um, and at a pace and um, in a way that like I can dictate. Along similar lines, I wanted to talk a little bit about your, about Studio Atau um, and the structure of it. I think we, we may have talked about this uh, a, a while ago on the podcast, but I think it's worth revisiting. Um, yeah the decision to set it up as a nonprofit, uh, what that has meant both operationally in terms of raising money and, and being able to do all the work or, or some at least of the work that you want to be doing with it. <laughs> um, and, and maybe some of the pros and cons a, around a nonprofit versus a for-profit enterprise. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely talked about this even since um, you have a social good business as well. Um, I mean, my main reason for setting up the studio as a nonprofit is we started it as an events business. And um, if you've ever like hosted a food event, you quickly notice that you don't make any money. And the only way you make money is if you pay your staff like as little as possible. Um, and there's just very little margins in food. And that's a whole nother discussion about restaurants and our broken food system and how it's, you know, built on a system of slavery and all of those things and why it's like the food system has over the restaurant kind of model has always been broken. Um, so I just didn't want to continue down that road because a, like I'm not in, this business to make money really, but as long as I can, you know, feed myself and, you know, have a place to live. But also, um, I just felt that if we were going to say that we have a social impact statement, like we care about this community or we are working for Asian Americans, like I was thinking to myself, if all these Asian Americans are coming to me because they want to help support Asian America, they want to come eat at our dinners, they want to come help me cook, they want to come help me prep, whatever, like, it's totally contradictory for me to say that I support them and then pay them $10 an hour. You know, I mean, I, I know they would probably still do it just because, but like, it's just not right. Like it's fundamentally like at odds with one another. Um, so at least in the nonprofit model, because you're not trying to own a, a turn a profit, you don't have investors who can tell you what to do. You have board directors, but um, you, I wasn't constrained to the regular, like, pay everyone at the minimum that you have to. So we have much, much higher industry uh, standards above the industry on what to pay, which I've honestly like arbitrarily set because I just think that A, I know we can pay them and B, like I think they're fair. And so everyone starts at like 20 to $25 an hour, kind of depending on what, what, like where you are, like in the country. Um, And at least like I know that they have been like fairly compensated for their work and we can still charge, you know, somewhat accessible prices for our events but growing out of the events model i think now being a nonprofit has just been able to ensure that the people who invest in us as in like people who support us on patreon or people who donate for us like are actually committed to what we care about they know that they are not going to get any money back Uh, like they just like they like our mission and they're engaged that they like send us feedback and they're like on our book club calls and are doing our patron calls like they're doing it out for the right reasons um and nobody owns the studio so it's like 
at the end of the day, I can also leave and someone else can take my position. It's, I would like to see it as like an entity that like lives on um, and isn't just about like what I want or what I care about. It's, you know, everyone gets a say. So that's been helpful in just understanding what, how we want like the internal process to look like and how to make it more as democratic as possible. At the end of the day, I still get, you know, final call on things like veto power. Um, but people that I work with are like, no, I don't like this idea, or I think we should restructure this, or I don't want to run this program. Um, like that's all fair and valid and we can move forward. Um, so that's been really helpful. I think there's a lot of challenges that exist being a nonprofit still. Like that being said, obviously nonprofits are kind of, they're kind of like a temporary solve essentially for the capitalism like that we have basically said we'll, we're okay with running untethered in this country. Um, and it's kind of like an in-between of like, we are not totally solving the issue, but this is like a little bit better than for profit, I guess. Um, but many times, especially for a bigger nonprofit, like you're really reliant on donors. And the reality is most of those donors are wealthy people who um, like are trying to shield they're trying to just get like tax deductions and that's why they donate. And so they want to go to the, the big galas and like all of these things. So a lot of nonprofits, if you actually, I can't remember what site it is, but you can look up how much of um, a nonprofit's funds they spend on fundraising versus actual like projects. And some of the biggest nonprofits like Make-A-Wish, um, they spend like 90, over 90% of their funds on fundraising, which includes things like throwing useless galas um, or like, you know, sending like cute little flyers and things like that. Um, and that, but that's a thing that now people kind of expect with nonprofits. And so people ask us like, oh, are you guys going to do like a gala? And I'm like, no, like I would spend, we would spend so much money on this event and it would generate very little money and it would just be pointless because it doesn't further our mission like whatsoever. But so it's kind of this like nasty cycle that if you want those big ticket donors, or if you want the government to donate you money, um, you kind of have to also be part of this cycle and start hobnobbing um and that's been very challenging because we want to do a grassroots way but then you're collecting like 15 dollars at a time you know obviously it's not impossible aoc showed us it's possible but it's much harder um, so we're always struggling between those two things do you have uh, like advice uh, for an entrepreneur who's thinking about starting their own project or or company how to make that decision whether a for-profit or a non-profit model is right for them? Um, I think it depends on what you think, like how you think you would like to be incentivized, because if you want to be incentivized by like, you know, making money, like it's okay to make money, even if you're a social good business, like how do you, um, if that profit will incentivize you to keep growing, keep scaling, like that's kind of the driver for you. I think that's fine. Just be a for-profit business and do good on the side or have that be baked into your um, model somehow. If like, growing and scaling is not a huge priority for you. And it's more about, I don't, I don't know, like if there's a specific thing, but for me, it was about like making sure that I could pay people a certain way for service industries. Um, then can, like see if nonprofit might make sense to you. If you feel that at least you have a, you have a community or a donor base that you hope you can be able to tap into like semi-regularly. And I'll also say that for a nonprofit, you still have to make money somehow. You don't have to make a profit. You can make a profit, um, but you still have to generate money. So like either way, thinking about 
what is going to be your revenue generating source. Because for us, it's not events and it's obviously not toolkits. It's like doing like um, private company demonstrations and events for them and it's miserable work and I hate it but it makes us money so um like what so at the same so it's like what how do you want to prioritize the money making segment because we don't prioritize it we just do it like a as a backfill but like for a for-profit business that would be your main line of business yeah yeah um Valerie should we do some rapid fire wrap up the interview yeah, and you know, I just want to say, Jenny, when you posted the white male privilege bingo, <laughs> like, Ethan, did you play the white male privilege bingo? Uh, I think I, I think I did, but I should pull it up, and uh, I don't remember where. Let me see if I can find it. Go ahead, Valerie, finish your point. I'm gonna look this up. Yeah, no, I I was just like, um, I I thought it was like just a great way to like get people engaged. Um, to kind of understand like these, these concepts that, um, that again, like they, they make people uncomfortable, like the concepts of having um, privilege, even though we all have some type of privilege. Totally. Um, Yeah. But like, I don't know. I just thought that was like such a great like way to kind of like get people engaged and kind of help people understand and, and basically think about things that they had that maybe they hadn't thought about before. So, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> that was super yeah. fun. So, uh, <laughs> any upcoming uh, games that you're going to have us play to get, <laughs> to get some uh, great points across? Um, man, no upcoming games. So, someone on that comment thread said she was going to make one for white women, but I haven't seen it materialize. Or maybe she made it, but she didn't send it to me. But I think somebody should make one on white women. But I don't know if I want to be that person. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I love that, and th- people could also make one on like cisgendered people, just so that like totally. we can all have a better concept of like what other like the the struggles other people face, basically. Yeah, that um, the one that uh, inspired me to do the white male privilege bingo was there was an Asian privilege bingo, and one of the bingo cards was. Um, thought uh, Crazy Rich Asians was awesome representation for Asians. And I was like, hmm, I definitely thought that for a second before I like read more about it. So I think it's just like one of those unconscious things that you constantly have to be learning. Um, And I said this too, it's like having privilege is like not a bad thing as long as you recognize it exists. Like many people are very like, don't like, don't say that privilege. Like this happened to me or like this bad thing. Um, It's more just like being more cognizant of like how you got to where you are today um, and owning up to that instead of, I don't know, being angry or like rejecting it or feeling like you got there all by yourself. Exactly. And I, I think that being cognizant would, I think the whole idea of that is to understand the people who don't have that privilege that maybe um, should be in that room with you getting that job also, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, Jenny, where can people find the bingo game if they want to play it? Uh, you can find it on my Instagram, which is at Chef Jenny Dorsey. All right. Oh. Should we do some, Valerie, you want to do some rapid fire now or we can talk about it? Yeah, okay. no, quick, quick, quick rapid quick. fire question. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Jenny, I'll ask you one of my favorite. Okay, it's late summer. Favorite late summer produce? Ooh, late summer produce. 
Does, do our watermelons still late summer? I don't know. Are they like mid I think so because um, I would put watermelons as late summer because, you know, some berries are early summer and they're they're gone and watermelons are still here. So, yeah. I'm rolling then, with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about a kitchen tool that you find yourself reaching for most often these days? Oh, um, definitely. I would say little tongs, like small tongs. And then also like a, like a wooden, I guess it's a wooden spatula. It's like for my walk. All right. Um, That's all I got with rapid fire. Uh, How about uh, (laughs) pros and cons of LA versus New York food? Ooh, that's that's serious, Ethan. That's not, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to get kicked off this show. (laughs) <laughs> but As I'm over Angelino. I'm curious. Oh, how about one highlight of living in LA? Oh yeah, I mean the Korean food in LA is amazing. I mean it just really puts New York to shame. I mean there's some really great Korean places in New York. Oh my god, all my like your uh, Korean chef friends. I'm sorry. Um, all of your restaurants are great. Um, I'm just saying the Korean food here is like really really good. Um, and there's it's like there's. A bigger population here so there's a lot more like shops that do like one specialty thing which is always awesome so that's been like a great highlight and most of them are open super late which is like even more awesome so like at any time of the day like go have salon talk like it's awesome that is such a great answer (laughs) i have one more uh you just adopted a new dog tell us about your new dog Oh, no. This is a really sad story. We actually Uh had to return her um, because she didn't love us very much. Um, We did adopt a new dog. We're trying to adopt a new one. But um, we adopted a dog through um, Angel City Pitbulls. They're like a pit bull rescue. And we think that – so she was used as a breeding dog. She was just really skittish. Um, She was with us for two weeks. And um, she seemed – like she wanted to be around other dogs and we thought it'd be like all other dogs. We have a little dog um, who's very used to pit bulls because we used to have a pit bull. Um, But unfortunately I think she just, the new dog needed a bigger dog because she was just very, very nervous and the sight and the the presence of our little dog didn't seem to alleviate her nerves like whatsoever. And so for two weeks she basically like hit on our bed Um, and like, like we had to like bring food and water to her and make sure she was eating and she had to like physically bring her outside. So it was just hard. So eventually we talked to them and we brought her back. So I'm sure she'll find a home that she's happier in with like a bigger dog. But now we'll see if there's any other pit bulls that they have that we can adopt because we really want another pit bull. Our pit bull passed away like three, four months ago. Yeah. All right. Well, it's, it's tough, but it sounds like you, uh, made the right decision for everybody. Yeah. Um, all right, Jenny, where can our listeners uh, find you and find your work? Yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram usually as well as um, the nonprofit. So I'm at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey and the nonprofit is Studio Atao. That's A-T-A-O. You can also find the studio online. It's studioatao.org. All right. And as always, you can reach us, YFood, at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. Uh, you can reach me on social, at Foodie in New York. Uh, thanks to Jess Krangich, our sound engineer, being awesome as always. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. And most of all, thanks to our guest, Jenny Dorsey. Thank you for joining us. Yay. Thanks for having me. 
see you all next week. Bye. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.